You may have heard the warnings. There are a lot of them, and they're coming fast and furious. Remember, when we shared about the World Economic Forum prediction that by the year 2030, you will eat much less meat? They also said we'd own nothing and be happy about it, but that's another story. What if they told us we'd eat less meat, not by choice, but because of shortage? This same World Economic Forum is among those predicting that humans will start eating bugs worldwide. Now, I can tell you, it'd take a severe shortage to get my family to eat bugs. But sadly, almost every major institution seems to be predicting that there are severe sh food shortages coming. For example, the IMF says there'll be a global food crisis. The Rockefeller Foundation warns of a massive immediate food crisis. President Biden recently warned that food shortages will be real. The United Nations says we're facing the worst food crisis since World War II. And it won't be in just some faraway land. Things are setting up in America to cause severe food shortages, even in our own country. Do we dare use the word famine? Let's run through just a few of the headlines that you may have missed. Here's one. Dozens of U.S. food processing plants destroyed in fires, accidents in recent weeks. Okay, Snopes is on that one. They say, ah, it's just a conspiracy. It, 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 it's just a coincidence. So ignore that. Nothing to see here, except for all those prior warnings about food shortages by the U.N., IMF, Rockefeller Foundation, and President Biden. It sort of feels like late 2019, when everyone was warning of a coming pandemic someday, but telling us not to worry about this biolab in Wuhan. Let's take a little look further. How about this one? Number two, China is urging families to stock up on food as supply challenges multiply. Now, that's from CNN last November. Then there's this one from Politico. Number three, China is buying up American farms. That became a very hot political topic in Washington last year. This is the same China that's also been buying up American food processing plants. China's not alone. Bill Gates has been buying farmland also. That's headline number four. Bill Gates is the biggest private owner of farmland in the United States. Why? That's from the UK Guardian last year. And of course, we have huge investments from our friends at BlackRock and Vanguard. Number five, BlackRock and Vanguard are buying up the world's food supply. As with China and Bill Gates, this may be normal. Maybe it's a good investment. But does the concentration of ownership feel right to you? Beyond that, we have Europeans purposely destroying food to combat climate change. Here's number six. Destroying food to fight climate change is madness and a conceit that could prove fatal. And we have our own nation committing our corn supply to produce ethanol, even knowing that we face food shortages. Why not just open up American energy development? Here's number seven. Biden gives in to the ethanol con. And that's from the Washington Post. Then there's the destruction of poultry due to avian flu. I know we have to protect our poultry industry, and killing flocks may be the right thing to do. But if there's a single case in a flock, every bird gets slaughtered, and this is crushing our chicken and egg supply. We've now seen avian flu in a majority of states. Number eight, prices soar as avian flu hits one in 10 egg-laying hens nationwide. That headline came out in late April, and the situation has gotten much worse since then. I can keep going. We have fertilizer shortages because fertilizer is made with energy and prices are off the charts. Then you have federal rules on how you're allowed to transport fertilizer, and that's crushing farmers. The bottom line, fertilizer shortages. And here's number nine, the world food supply is at risk due to a global fertilizer shortage. 
That is not conspiracy theory. It is a fact, and it is made infinitely worse by the war in Ukraine. From CNBC, they say a fertilizer shortage worsened by war in Ukraine is driving up global food prices and scarcity. And of course, the war in Ukraine has also put at risk all the food normally produced in both Russia and the Ukraine, which brings us to point number 10. Consider this from the United Nations. Their headline, New Scenarios on Global Food Security Based on Russian-Ukraine Conflict. They say Russia is the world's largest exporter of wheat and Ukraine is the fifth largest. Together, they provide 19% of the world's barley supply, 14% of wheat, and 4% of maize, making up more than one-third of global cereal exports. When you look at all 10 issues together, you're likely very worried especially when we know that the food demand is at record levels and supply chains are breaking down. Is this a real problem or just a set of conspiracies? To break it down, we've invited Ross Kennedy into the economic war room. Ross is a global supply chain expert and has recently published some important thoughts on food production and the risk of shortages. Ross is a senior fellow at Security Studies Group and a founder of Fortis Analysis. Welcome, Ross. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you having me. Hey, we only have a couple of minutes left. Are you worried about the food supply? Yeah, I am, uh, both on a domestic basis here in the U.S., uh, domestic North America, uh, given that Mexico and, and Canada are tightly coupled to us on, on many things, including food, uh, but also worried about it from an international standpoint. And uh, the reason uh, for that worry is not just the top line number of here's X number of bushels or tons of uh, product that may or may not be available over the next year. It's, it's that we're dealing with uh, really the, the collapse uh, of a very globalized, industrialized food system uh, that a lot of countries rely on uh, and in some ways our own relies on. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a scary thing. You heard my opening and some of those various yes. issues. Uh, overall, is it a conspiracy? Is it reality? What are we facing? Uh, we're facing the reality uh, of sig significant constraints across a whole lot of things. It's constraints at the raw material level, at the production level, uh, weather, uh, shipping and transportation, uh, regulatory environment, fuel costs. All of these things are, are not just tightly coupled, but they're interdependent and interconnected uh, in a very complex systemic way. And when any one of them fails, the system is able to absorb some of that uh, and kind of spread or disperse the impact across. When you talk about everything beginning to fail sort of simultaneously, both from uh, natural, understandable, predictable reasons, but also uh, the malign intent of geopolitical actors and, and you know, private parties within that, uh, you've got a very, very toxic mess that is, is going to take some uh, time and some real significant uh, investment and forethought by, by our country, at least online for us. Well, we're going to need to take a break. When we come back, I want to dive into those issues a little more deeply with you. I want to know, how do we know what part of a global food price crisis is the real problem? And where should we be focusing our attention to tackle that problem? And then, most importantly, how can we protect our nation? And individually, how can we protect our families? So let's take a break and we'll come back with that. Ross, we know that the leading authorities are predicting a food crisis. What's that going to look like? Is it man-made, natural, a perfect storm caused by a combination of factors? Tell us about the food crisis. Well, as far as its impact, um, it's going to be pretty geographically dispersed. Uh, you know, even within the U.S., you're talking about 
Uh, some places are, are probably not going to struggle as much because they're very close to or adjacent to uh, both the resources and the production needed uh, to, to convert raw material into some form of, of palatable food product for humans. You're going to have other places in the U.S. that are, you know, historically food deserts, mainly because of transportation and regulatory issues that we can expect that to continue to worsen. Uh, in other parts of the world, you're talking about some countries, uh, large parts of Africa, uh, are, are wholly dependent on imports for staple cereal items like wheat or rice. Uh, they can't grow them for themselves. And so when you talk about major disruption to a breadbasket of the world, uh, similar to, you know, what, what Russia and Ukraine and the Black Sea region at large is, uh, for those countries, their, their idea of shortage is, is existential. Um, it's, it's immediate political crisis. It's riots already in Sudan and other places. So the, the impact is going to be different. Here in the U.S. Uh, or in China, food crisis tends to manifest in a mix of, of corporate uh, and, and private sector response and, and public sector response. Uh, in other parts of the world, it just goes you know, straight to uh, apocalypse, right? Uh, regime change. Um, so here in the U.S., our response to food insecurity and, and, and a looming uh, real crisis across a number of things, food of which is one of them, uh, does look different than what maybe it looks like in China or looks like in, in Africa. Or... Well, this is scary to me because I remember the Arab Spring, and I've done a lot of research on the number one economic weapon you can wage as another nation is to deny them food. Because when people yeah. lose food, uh, what happens is it creates riots, instability, regime changes. It, it is the number one issue for, uh, for nations geopolitically in crisis. Absolutely, it is. Um, you know, here in the U.S., we're not going to see food shortages to the scale that we would see total regime collapse, maybe the way you would in uh, other parts of the world. But what we are going to see here is a really complex, concerted effort uh, by a lot of different stakeholders to grab their secure seat at the table uh, beyond what they say would be the right side of the issue. Uh, so a food, a major food processing company like an Archer Daniels Midland uh, or maybe a Tate and Lyle. Uh, they're going to have a different perspective on what it is versus a nutrient, which is a very large uh, fertilizer, seed, and chemical retailer here in the U.S. Uh, they're going to all have a different perspective than maybe what a farmer thinks is best for him at his local level. And so the complexity of how all these various stakeholders resolve uh, the, the, their, their individual needs and wants of their domain uh, and be able to continue to produce enough crops at the scale we've become accustomed to, uh, that, that's going to be a very difficult thing. The other thing for the U.S. is, is that we're a major food exporter. Uh, and a lot of, a lot across a lot of commodities and, and domains, uh, we are a country that produces and sustains more than enough, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables for ourselves in terms of a per person. Uh, we produce more than enough grains and oil seeds for ourselves. We produce more than enough animal protein for ourselves. We have distribution challenges, but you know, in the main, we export a lot of that. It's been a very powerful uh, geopolitical and, and policy tool for us, uh, using food as a diplomatic lever. And we're going to have less of that in the next few years than, than we've had in a long time. And, and even that will have a, a significant ability or a significant impact, rather, on our ability to utilize food in all the different ways that we do. Uh, so the, the world is very much turning upside down over the next few years. And I do fear that our biggest challenge is we don't have the political insider will to do what needs to be done to address it across all those domains. Well, I want to address that, but 
Tell us how you come to these conclusions. What kind of data points do you see in your job and in your research that, that has brought you to this concern? Yeah, absolutely. So the U.S., we, we are highly mechanized and industrialized in, in how we produce uh, food and feed ingredients. And at the average, the average farm level, the average farmer, even if he's got a couple thousand acres of, of whatever it may be, let's say a corn soybean farmer in the Midwest, He's going to have millions and millions of dollars in capital expenditure related to his equipment, uh, his grain, you know, his on-farm grain storage, his dryer, all of the things that, that a modern mechanized farm needs to run. And he's going to make decisions based around what is going to give him the highest revenue, certain margin per acre to utilize all that very expensive uh, equipment. The bigger farmers have, have, have exponentially more exposure uh, to large-scale factors, price of corn, availability of fertilizer and chemicals, for example. And they're making decisions around that as well. So all of these individual farmers making these decisions at their local individual scale will add up because they are driven at some level by the macro trend. The risk that those guys are facing, which is fundamental, is what can I grow this year that, that is good for my soil, that fits the infrastructure I've invested into, and then pushes that into the, the industrialized food pipeline that we have here in the U.S. If we find ourselves in a situation where natural gas becomes, because of regulatory policies around climate change, natural gas becomes prohibitively expensive to uh, create additional capacity for or to put more pipelines in to be able to move it around, now you're talking about a you know, very negative impact on the ability to produce uh, synthetic nitrogen fertilizers. Right. If we have and that is negative man-made. Yeah, that is man-made. You yeah. know, the, the nitrogens that we use, it's one of the three critical, what we call macronutrients. Uh, for corn and soybeans. Soybeans mainly fix their own nitrogen, but they consume an awful lot of potassium and phosphorus. And a lot of those fertilizers are uh, partially made in the U.S., partially imported. Now we're talking about the impact of trade policies, shipping disruptions, uh, price of marine fuel to move these things from one part of the world to another. So even though we have wildly productive soils, even though our farmers are phenomenally advanced technologically in, in their business practices and, and the resources available to them to produce an acre of, of corn or soybeans, that all is still is impacted on, on some downstream basis or upstream basis rather by what resources we can get from what country. And when 40% of, uh, you know, of, I believe it's uh, potash uh, that comes in from overseas into the U.S., which is something we desperately need uh, from you know, industrial food production, uh, that's coming from Belarus and Russia, a significant amount of it. And, and you all monitor all this. I mean, you, you're able to I keep do. track. There's data behind everything you're saying, data yeah. on the um, availability of fertilizer and all that. And you're, uh, that's something you're monitoring. You're watching every day, right? Exactly right. I mean, there's numerous trade services uh, throughout the world that uh, are, are monitoring at an individual shipment and bill of lading level what all of those details are the stakeholders of products being shipped, aggregating them. You know, this is raw data feed essentially coming in from, from the global, you know, from global trade. And that data is not manipulated in the main because that data, those data products are basically being sold to companies. And the value of that product is better information for them to make decisions in the same way we can use that data to understand these trends. Well, it's getting obvious. I get that. We're going to need to take another break. When we come back, let's talk about what we as a nation can do to solve the food shortage problem. More importantly, what can our families do about it? We've been talking with Ross Kennedy. He is a global supply chain expert, and he monitors 
all of the data, and this isn't political data, this is uh, USDA, this is you know, actual real numbers about fertilizers and plantings and, and food supplies and so forth. Uh, it's not politicized at all. And it's obvious we have a real problem here. It's a real food problem. It's something that we talked about in the economic war room when COVID was ravaging. And we talked with Mitzi Perdue about the idea that, that there could be a shortage because farmers were being hammered at that time. They've done a good job so far, uh, but there are new problems coming down the line. So Ross, what policies can we change now to help stave off a global famine? First thing we need to do, uh, and I say we, that this is at the state and at the federal level, uh, we need to really consider the impact of a lot of these regulations that uh, choke off the, the ability to access and produce uh, the raw materials or the intermediate materials uh, like compound fertilizers or in the case of a raw material, natural gas, uh, and be able to uh, exploit the, the really amazing abundant natural resources we have but exploit them in obviously an ethical and environmentally responsible and way and all the things that we've come to expect, uh, you know, of our companies. But there is a way to do that. That's not just make it as difficult as possible, which is you know, kind of currently what the last 20, 30 years in environmental policy. Is. So well, we do need to make that easy. Yeah, let me interrupt you there for a second. One of the things that I find just almost hard to accept is the idea that we have an energy shortage because of policies that we've adopted. And the solution for it, according to President Biden, is okay, well, let's turn corn into ethanol and put it in our, in our fuel feedstock. That doesn't make sense to me. We're taking food and putting it in the gas tank. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, and, and that gets really to the second part of it, which is the idea of captured interest driving policy. Uh, in the U.S., we have a renewable fuel standard because the corn and soybean lobbyists wanted to uh, be able to drive extra value-added production of products here in the U.S., uh, and so we ended up putting food into our cars, essentially, right? Um, so we have to get we have to get around that interest, and, and in the same way, we also have the meatpacking industry, for example, that has done nothing but consolidate over the last 30 years. You're talking about much larger, uh, more complex, more fragile supply chains. And that capture that we have seen going all the way back up in Sinclair with the jungle and, uh, you know, the, the passage of the Meatpacking Act. Now we've reached a point in time where we're so fragile that a single, you know, avian flu outbreak and a single operation in Iowa can crush egg supply in the U.S. So the, these laws that USDA has on the books that, that really exist in a lot of ways to serve the benefit of a, a few relatively small, you know, niche of quite powerful, large, uh, food and feed production firms, we need to distribute that risk out. We need to make it easier for local farmers to work together to build their own small-scale meat packing plant. We need to make it easier for families to go to a local meat packer or butcher shop and say, hey, look, uh, if I go in on raising a cow, can, can this be legally uh, butchered and sold to me and to my family and friends? And so that's where you think, you know, have things like, uh, you know, Representative Matthews. What, what I hear you saying is decentralized food. And, and we've seen that. Yeah. We've seen, you know, Amish farmers that are being punished because they're selling raw milk or they're selling eggs that haven't gone through all, all of the. And yet we're denying people food that they may need. And, and that just seems criminal to me. That's absolutely right. I mean, the, the individual American who has the ability to, uh, you know, put a few chickens in their backyard and, and feed it some handfuls of feed every day. Well, those those chicken, you know, those hens will produce, they're laying hens, they'll produce eggs. And when they stop producing eggs, they become meat. 
And so the, the inability of people to access very simple ways to, uh, if not completely become self-sufficient, but at least offset and mitigate some of the risk that comes from very centralized industrialized food, uh, we need to be able to allow people to do that and, and make their own choices. And even grow food in your yard. I mean, right now, the rules, local rules primarily, that, that prevent you from having a garden in your yard, which just seems crazy to me. It is. And anytime you take away a person's ability to produce some level of, of calorie for themselves, whatever it may be, if we could grow Twinkies in the yard versus, you know, peppers or green beans, anytime you deny people the ability to uh, freely associate with and or cooperate together uh, on building more resilient food systems and, and, and all of that, now you've, you've taken out that level of, of shared community bond. Uh, that you really need to keep communities safe and to keep families safe. And you've, you've outsourced that to uh, you know, a grocery store and, and to industrialized distribution centers that food processors that can catch fire. Uh, well, if, if my garden has a, a blight gets into it and, and knocks out some of the vegetables, I still have the ability to go to a neighbor or go to the store, a uh, farmer's market, you know, cooperative, you know, growers cooperative, access those resources. Well, you're, you, you're really describing something that, you know, that America used to have and is lost. And, and, and that is even the educational component to young people of being able to see uh, uh, things grow in the science and, and just connecting people. It, it really is powerful. All right, so let's, let's jump topics. Uh, what areas should we be investing in? We don't provide investment advice. Just get opinions from experts. You're an expert. Uh, we tell everybody, do your own research and get a financial advisor. Don't, don't jump off this show. But Ross, what can we be investing in right now? Yeah, I think the trend towards, you know, what makes sense in terms of allocating if you've got some money to put into the market. Uh, I would be looking at sort of a barbell approach to things. Um, food production has continued to be a very intensely uh, high-tech uh, type of enterprise, high capex. So, companies that have a lot of uh, exposure to and an ability to, to really continue from a supply chain side or from a regulatory side to, to maintain some dominance, those companies are going to be very important. I'd also like to see a lot more money flowing at, at scale into uh, technologies or uh, companies or processes in some way that enables uh, to de-industrialize a little bit, uh, but take innovation down to the local level, to the regional level, uh, vertical farming systems, new, novel, inexpensive ways to create fertilizers, to grow crops, to enable people to network together on food production uh, and food distribution and storage. So that barbell approach, yeah, take the high tech, the good players, the ones that are stable, as well as the, the, the innovators and the ones that are going to make it easier uh, for people at a local level to, to feed themselves. Ross, that's great. I want to thank you so much for joining us. We're going to invite you back. We're going to drill down into some of those investment ideas because this is not only a threat to us, it is an opportunity for those who have the wisdom to see and prepare for it. Yeah, Ross has given you some good ideas at the local level and in your family to grow some food and also some investment thoughts that you can work on. You know, this isn't a time to isolate. We want to build a community, an economic war room family. And the best way to do that is with a trained financial advisor and to stay tuned to this program and use our battle plans. 
I want to tell you, we have the NSIC advisor training. I talk about it on almost every show. You can learn more about it at economicwarroom.com forward slash advisor. Because if you have a financial advisor, you need to send them to us and we'll fill them in in an eight-week course online at Liberty University to train them all about this. You can learn more at nsic.org. And you can get a free economic battle plan for this episode and all our episodes at economicwarroom.com. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. If we work together, we can solve this problem and prosper and help the world. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.